Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join join us Inside the the Morgue. Welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. Today we're making our way through the CSI franchise and watching CSI Miami. Inspired by the original CSI show, CSI Miami follows a South Florida team of forensic investigators who use both cutting-edge scientific methods and old-fashioned police work to solve crimes. We're watching CSI Miami Season 6, Episode 6, titled Sunblock. This episode starts out with a party scene. Everyone's out in the Miami sun having a good time, also remembering to put on their sunscreen, when suddenly it becomes extremely shady. So everyone looks up at the sun and they notice that a solar eclipse is happening, which, out of the blue, that happens on a random, like, Tuesday in Miami. (laughs) I was gonna say, like, everybody was so shocked. I feel like it's a Like, wouldn't the news have been talking about it, though, like, weeks leading up? I was like, I feel like we always know when an eclipse is coming, but everybody was like, what is happening? So during the solar eclipse, everyone's distracted and it's dark, and that gives the killer the perfect opportunity to strike. Clearly the killer knew the eclipse was coming. Clearly the killer was paying attention to the news. No, nobody else at that party watched the news and knew an eclipse was coming. The killer did. He finds his victim on a pool lounge chair and strangles him with a cord-like weapon while everyone else is distracted by the event occurring. The eclipse passes, and the CSI Miami team is called to the scene. In the team, we have Horatio Kane, Callie Duquesne, Ryan Wolf, Alex Woods, and Detective Jake Berkeley. Sorry, I just have to say, Horatio Kane is my favorite because of how dramatic he is. He's literally a meme online of saying something really cringy and then putting on his sunglasses, and I... He's the sunglass meme. He's the sunglasses meme. It's one of my favorite memes. I love memes. He also, he does that dramatic, deep voice trying to intimidate you. Everything he says sounds so dramatic. He's so cringy. I love it though, but it's, yeah, it is cringy is the best way to describe it. Also, the sepia filter that they have during this scene, in every single scene, it's very cringy also. Oh my god, it is. I didn't even pick up on that until you said it. Now I can't. So saturated. It and- is. Every- oh, that's, what it, that's the word. Everything is saturated. We see the victim lying dead on the ground. He has dried blood streaming down his body, coming from the neck wound. Wood says that this, she's talking about the strangled dead victim, is bad mojo. Grandmother was into astrology, and there's a saying that goes, when someone dies during an eclipse, they can't rest until they take another soul with them. Callie proceeds to photograph the scene, which we give a great green flag to. In last week's episode, we talked all about how important photography is to the investigation. It's one of the key ways to document everything. The victim was found in a singular pool tent right in front of a personal-sized pool. She photographs the body as a whole, then a second closer photo and a final third close-up photo, paying close attention to the neck wound and the position of the body. Our investigators do the same thing, and Alice and I do the same thing during autopsy exams, too. We always take a big scale picture and then close-up pictures to show reference. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely important for reference, so it's not just like a close-up of a wound or something and you don't know where it is. You need to, like the reference photo beforehand. Next to the body is a fallen cup, keys, and an open metal briefcase. This case seems very out of place for a pool party, and it's also empty, so they're wondering if the contents in the case were worth killing over. 
She photographs the open case, the inside of it, and the handles. She then grabs from her investigation bag several swabs and swabs the handle and buckles of the case as evidence. This is also a green flag because what she's actually doing is DNA swabbing. This has actually revolutionized crime scene investigation. Forensic professionals can extract information from even the tiniest of samples of epithelial cells, blood, semen, saliva, urine, bone, and other tissue. The swab that they're doing is for touch DNA. So this is when you use a dry swab with just like a drop of distilled water applied to the cotton tip, and you swab the area while rotating the swab to ensure that the entire swab surface has made contact with the object. But you also have to avoid compromising the sample by redepositing the specimen, so you can't rotate the swab more than once. Then you allow the swab to dry, and you place it in a transport tube. At the lab, they ran the DNA from the scene and got a match to a known felon named Mario Montero. Montero is in the system for two aggravated assaults, so I have to give a red flag just for this scene and the way that they're showing the screen of the computer. It's the, whatever database they're using. It's his mugshot and all of his basic information, but the color of the text is really what's throwing me off, and it's really cringy. It's bright teal and yellow text. I feel like cringy is a good way to describe, like, CSI. <laughs> This CSI episode was very cringy. Actual databases would never use such bright, flashy colors. None that I've seen, at least, yeah. Especially our database that we use at work. It's just black yeah. and white. It's also the same for their CODIS information that they pull up. It does not look accurate at all to what actual databases are. The lab tech says that something isn't right with the DNA of Montero and the match from the swab. There are 16 markers and two peaks per marker. The first 10 markers are normal because they got 8 to 10 alleles apiece. The last six markers are way outside the variant. The last peak is so low it barely registers, meaning it's not registering as human. Montero's DNA is mutating because the peaks shown mimic a specific canine profile, such as a wolf. Uh, this is when I. I like, wonder if this episode was premiering during Halloween. I, oh, we should we should have looked into that. I I know it had to. They be. They really threw me off with this whole wolf scenario. Again, it seems like so cringy, but like I couldn't look away. I was like, wait, this guy wants to be a wolf. It's so. Horrible. Horrible. I can't look away. What? It had to be, I'm thinking, the style, the clothing that everybody was wearing seemed very early 2000s. Peak 2000s. Peak early 2000s. I was there. I was in middle school. I was probably rocking the same fashion. And I was also very into Twilight. So I'm wondering if this was around the same time as Twilight. So they're trying to get in on the vampire wolf thing. Yes. Oh, Eclipse. Oh my God. Eclipse is one of the titles of the, the Twilight books. Maybe. Okay. I'm convinced that Twilight was at its peak peak when they were doing this episode. Probably. Eric Delco goes to interview Montero. The evidence puts him at the scene of the homicide, and Montero confesses that he was, in fact, at the pool party. He says he saw the victim, already dead, and went to his tent and stole items from the case. But he says he did not kill the man. The case contained wolf hormones, and the victim was the go-to guy to buy these hormones and other types of drugs from. <laughs> Who brings wolf hormones to a pool party? Seriously, though. He's going through his checklist. Drugs, alcohol, wolf hormones. <laughs> Sunscreen. <laughs> He's packing it all. Oh, my God. Montero says that if he were the one who killed the victim, there wouldn't have been enough left to identify him. Delco says he wants everything back that Montero took from the cabana, and he's charging him with theft for now. Back at the lab, they have everything that the felon stole from the party in evidence, and they're now analyzing it. There are several glass vials labeled as embryonic hormones, canis lupus. In the pile of hormone vials, there's an employee ID badge from the hotel the pool party was being held at that may have the victim's blood on it with frayed threads that were probably from the lanyard it was ripped off of. 
A lanyard, cord, or string are all possible items to strangle someone with. The badge has an employee ID number. They're going to find the employee to interview him. The ID belongs to Sean Hodges, a pool boy at the hotel, and he claims that someone broke into his locker and stole his badge. Hodges has symmetrical linear lines on the palms of his hands. He said that he cut himself when he was putting out lounge chairs. They'll verify that story even if they have to turn over every chair. You know what I just thought that I wish I looked up? before we started recording, I wish I looked up if there was a rise in people trying to buy wolf hormones in the early 2000s because Twilight was so big and Teen Wolf. Wasn't the actor who played Sean the pool boy in Teen Wolf? Yes, the actor who plays Sean Hodges plays Derek in Teen Wolf. That's so funny. I want to know if in the early 2000s if people were trying to like buy (laughs) wolf hormones to be werewolves. At a pool party, they could get wolf hormones. Apparently at a pool party in Miami. If you knew, if you found a guy with a silver, like, briefcase in Miami. Go to him. had wolf hormones. He's the guy. So back to the show in the autopsy suite. An autopsy is about to begin on the victim, and Woods, who's the medical examiner, is the one performing the autopsy. But we have to give a red flag here because she is completely alone and does not have any autopsy techs assisting with the autopsy. So we deserve representation in these crime dramas. We do a lot. We do a lot. We work alongside the pathologists and crime lab techs in some cases, and we are the ones who prepare the autopsy suite, we move the bodies, and we even assist on the evisceration of the body. We also collect important specimens and evidence during the exam, and we take all the photographs. So CSI and I think the other show, Law & Order, was the one who didn't give us any representation like just cast us we're free we deserve representation i could use the extra money i know right i'll take it i'll even be a dead body just just throw me in the background wood is dictating her autopsy so green flag for this because we've mentioned before that dictating the exam is very common for pathologists and medical examiners to do she starts with the case number the victim's name the victim's gender race and age he is a caucasian male and 30 years old The case is an apparent homicide by ligature, and she also says in her dictation where the body was found. She dictates that a deep furrow, or also known the impression that's left behind from the ligature on the neck, stretches across the anterior front of the neck, crossing just below the laryngeal prominence. The laryngeal prominence is the cartilage that wraps around the anterior larynx or the voice box. It is sometimes referred to as an Adam's apple. So green flag here because in homicidal strangulations, the ligature marks do tend to create a furrow lower or more inferior to the laryngeal prominence, whereas if a victim had a self-inflicted strangulation injury, it would tend to be higher up on the neck and above the laryngeal prominence or superior to the laryngeal prominence. However, I just have to say this furrow like they did a close-up of this victim's neck and the furrow did not look deep to me at all it was a legit straight line of red it was was just like a strip of red (laughs) and i know there are limitations to special effects makeup but like it just didn't look realistic at all so some other information about how much pressure it actually takes to strangle someone only 11 pounds of pressure on both carotid arteries for 10 seconds is necessary to cause unconsciousness and it takes 4.4 pounds of pressure on the jugular veins or 33 pounds of pressure on the trachea to completely close off air supply So she says there seems to be something stuck in the wound, so she grabs her forceps and pulls out a hair fiber, bagging it for the lab to analyze because it could be from the killer. She then begins her Y incision, 
And this is a typical incision that we do at autopsy. It starts at the shoulders and then it goes down to the sternum and then one line down the midline. It literally is self-explanatory. It looks like a Y. Um, But we do have to give this a red flag for the actor because she clearly never learned how to hold a scalpel. She was holding it super floppily. She's holding it at the very bottom of the handle and has zero grip. Also, I wanted to say this. We talked about this the other day with one of our pathologists that in America, we're the only ones to do a Y and incision and other parts of the world they don't do that they just do a midline incision which is from the top of the chin down to the pubic symphysis yeah i was surprised to hear that we're like one of the few areas that does a y incision yeah because other parts of the world they don't have wakes and viewing so they don't need to prepare the body because i think everywhere else they just do direct cremation like our practice of having wakes and stuff it's really interesting i want to read more about that i want to look into it so just as woods is about to reflect the skin on the abdomen she collapses on the floor Later, Wolf comes into the autopsy room and finds Woods on the floor, and he quickly rushes to her and calls for paramedics. Kaylee and Delco scan the room. He says that Alex's doctor called and that she regained consciousness and that her CT scan came back normal, uh, so there isn't any internal cause for her collapse. So they think it was probably an environmental cause. But the hazmat team had cleared the room, and Kaylee scanned the victim's body with a mini-ray, and the scan came up with nothing. We'll give a green flag here because the mini-ray is a handheld volatile organic compound monitor that has a photoionization detector to detect if there is a leak of hazardous gases. They're starting to think that the superstition of someone dying during an eclipse is right and that the body does not rest until it takes someone else's soul. The team go over to the giant wall of pull-out coolers. It is very stereotypical of CSI to have this. But anyway, they just go over to one of the coolers and they pull out a female victim who was also in apparent strangulation and has ligature marks on her neck, very similar to the first victim. This victim is a 23-year-old female who was killed in her apartment. The night shift team processed the body and there was no way of telling if there was a pattern on the victim until now. So there have been two murders within 12 hours and both of the victims were strangled within five miles of each other. The team is dealing with a serial killer now. The female victim lived alone, did not work, and she doesn't have anyone to claim her body. Delco and Berkeley are at her apartment searching for evidence and Delco noticed an abundance of takeout menus, catalogs, and a mini fridge right by her computer. There's a deep wear pattern in her desk chair, which tells him that she spent a great deal of time in front of her computer. A delivery guy was the one who discovered her body, and Delco wants to interview him again. The delivery guy says that the woman was his best customer. She needed someone almost every night, and he always delivered to her. She would leave her door unlocked with money on the side table so she didn't even have to get up from her computer. The last order she placed was food for two. But when he got there to deliver it, he opened her door like he always did, and the money wasn't on the table, and that's when he discovered her body. He said that that was the only time he ever saw her face. And the delivery guy said he did not see the killer that night in or around the home. The team is going through the woman's computer. It is basically her lifeline, and she had an icon for basically everything. They go through her messages and see if she had any communications with anyone last night that she was alive. She went by a chat room and was talking to another person who said that the two of them should meet. To which she replied, kind of busy, I don't know. That message was sent at 11.30 p.m. and she died shortly after that. They run a reverse trace on the IP address of the person who she was chatting with and come up with his real name. His name is Nicholas Pike and Kane goes to interview him at his home. We gotta love Kane with his dramatics. 
Nicholas Kane runs a nightclub and says he never met this woman in person and that they just chatted online. He says they were supposed to hook up last night, but she backed out on him. He didn't even know her actual address. After he got off the computer, he went to his club to entertain some VIPs. Woods is back to work in the autopsy room, working on the male victim's autopsy again. The first victim, the drug dealer, he was apparently also taking the drugs that he would occasionally sell. His choice of drug was crystal meth. Woods holds up his stomach, which is perfectly firm and dark in color, which is a major red flag because when you dissect out the stomach, it is far from firm. And depending on the size of the person, it's either a smaller or larger stomach, also depending on if they ate before they died. And it's really floppy and jiggly and smooth in texture, not hard or firm. I don't know how to describe it to someone who's never seen an autopsy, but it's... You know, it's almost like a water balloon that's half filled. (gasps) That's a good description. Yeah, that's exactly how I'm going to describe it from now on to people who probably don't want to hear me talking about (laughs) it. A half-filled water balloon. Half-filled water balloon. (laughs) (laughs) So what she was actually holding kind of looks more like a spleen than a stomach. Meth's effects on the stomach include gastric ulcers and interstitial ischemia, which is where your blood vessels constrict and your intestines aren't receiving enough oxygen. However, why was there meth in the decedent's stomach in this scene? Meth is typically inhaled, not swallowed, so why it wouldn't it wouldn't have been in the stomach to begin with. So that's another major red flag. I do have to admit that I didn't catch this right away. I was too <laughs> focused on that it didn't look like a stomach that I didn't pick up on. Oh yeah, when you inhale something, it goes to your lungs, yeah. not your stomach. And I think she even says like he smoked it. So I sh- yeah, she did. Yeah. And she says that the gases from the stomach is what knocked her out. And she states that crystal meth is cut with ammonia, drain cleaner, and even chloroform, and that massive use of crystal meth can cause a buildup of phosphine gas. So another red flag here, because none of these products have phosphorus, and therefore would not be able to create a phosphine gas as a byproduct during a chemical reaction. And what I think they were referring to is how phosphine gas is a byproduct when cooking meth, not ingesting meth. And we have to give a huge shout out to Alice's boyfriend, Costa, who has his PhD in chemistry and was teaching us about this. He was our reference during this. I asked him about phosphine gas and he's like, please tell me you're working on your podcast and you're not trying to kill someone. I was like, yes, it's for the podcast. We also did some research to see what would happen if phosphine gas was inhaled. And according to the CDC, exposure to phosphine can cause no nausea, vomiting, stomach pain, diarrhea, thirst, muscle pain, difficulty breathing, and fluid in the lungs. Inhaling phosphine causes respiratory irritation, compromises heart and circulatory functions, depresses the central nervous system, and produces severe gastrointestinal pain. And according to Costa, like I said, he has his PhD in medicinal chemistry, it's extremely toxic and can be immediately dangerous at 50 parts per million, which is a very low concentration. So when in the stomach, phosphine gas can hydrolyze and form phosphoric acid. But again, the decedent inhaled meth. He didn't swallow it. So it shouldn't have been in his stomach in the first place. I can't get over that. And I'm kind of disappointed in myself that I didn't catch it immediately. Back to the show, Wolf says that he would think that the gas would dissipate over time, but Wood states that that's only if your body has a chance to absorb it first. She theorizes that the victim was smoking crystal meth right before he was killed. He was not ingesting it. 
And since he didn't have time to absorb and metabolize the drug, it caused her to pass out, which is just very incorrect. Woods asks Wolf about the hair she found in the neck wound and if he figured out who it belonged to. Wolf is confused and said he never got the hair sample. She had bagged it and put it on a tray, and when she collapsed, she knocked over the tray, therefore knocking over the hair, and it went under a table. But they found it, and now they're going to go analyze it. So once they analyze it, they find that there's no skin tag on the hair, so there's no DNA to the hair. But the hair is short and coarse, and the colors are banded. So Wolf is guessing that the hair is most likely from a dog. There's only one suspect that possibly has dog DNA, which is Montero. So some info about dog versus human hair here. Human hairs are generally more consistent in color and pigmentation throughout the length of the hair shaft, whereas animal hairs exhibit radical color changes in a short distance, which is called banding. Delco goes to Montero's home with a search warrant and they enter, hearing growling noises, and they find a wolf chained to the wall. Montero's on the floor with the same ligature mark on his neck like the other victims, but he's still alive. It was so dramatic, the reveal that he was alive. His eyes just, like, shot open. He said someone was just in his home and tried to kill him. Montero said that the wolf protected him and scared the killer off, but the killer made his first mistake. He left blood on the doorway. They collect swabs of the blood, so there's a couple different confirmatory tests for when blood's found at the scene. One test is the ABA card hematrace. A hematrace test strip is used to detect blood by identifying the presence of human hemoglobin. The test strip contains an anti-human hemoglobin antibody, and the blood sample is applied to the bottom of the test strip. If human hemoglobin is present, then a mobile antibody anti-agent complex will be formed. This complex then migrates through the test strip to a test window, and if it's a positive result for human hemoglobin, a pink dye band will appear. After all their work, they do find a match. Kane goes back to interview Hodges and tells him that they recovered his blood from the second crime scene. So they have the missing lanyard from his locker, the cuts on his hands, and now the blood. So it's not looking great for Hodges at this point. Kane thinks that the pool boy is being framed, and the security guard verified that his locker was indeed broken into. The team is now looking at the pool lounge chairs to see if he was telling the truth about cutting his hands on the chair. One of the chairs, they do find a puncture hole in the metal with some blood on it, and there's a similar puncture hole on the other side of the chair. With there being blood on the chair from Hodges cutting himself, the killer could have stolen the sample of his blood and planted it at Montero's home. But also on the chair, they find a bit of trace. They collect the trace and get it in for analyzing. Callie gets a match from the trace evidence, and it's a topical cream like suntan lotion. But the sample is from a medication for people with with polymorphic light eruption, otherwise known as phototoxicity, which is basically just an allergy to the sun. Even a few minutes in the sun could cause a person with this allergy to break out in blisters or hives. This rules out Hodges as a suspect, being that he's a pool boy and he's out in the sun all day. So if the killer was allergic to the sun, that's why he struck during the eclipse, and that's why he's been striking at nighttime. If you remember, Pike's a nightclub owner, so he basically only works during nighttime, which there's no risk to the sun exposure there. So Callie suggests inviting him outside for a meeting to see if he shows. You know what just clicked for me? Were they trying to make him like a vampire that only went out at night? And then they had the wolf guy. This episode is Twilight. That just clicked for me is that the killer can only come out when the sun isn't out. This episode isn't about forensics anymore. It's about Twilight. In front of the precinct, Pike parks his car and meets Kane. Kane says they forgot to get a sample from him the other day and asks if he would step out of his car so they can do so. 
Pike hesitates before stepping out, but he does step out of the car. However, the samples they took from him come back negative for phototoxicity medication. Callie gets all the evidence from Hodge's locker and all the evidence gathered from the women's apartment, which is a green flag. Everything appears to be properly packaged in envelopes with evidence tape and plastic evidence bags. She's also wearing gloves while doing this so as not to disrupt any evidence that she might gather. In the samples collected from the woman's home, there is a hair sample, which is a wolf hair. The wolf is Montero's pet, so they now think that Montero got his wolf hair on him and then shed it at not one, but two crime scenes. After further analyzing the woman victim's computer, they learn that she had been talking to Montero for four to five hours a day. Again, they bring him in for questioning and ask him about his relationship with her. He says that they had never met in person, but Delco brings up the fact that wolf hairs were found in her home. Montero says that one time she let slip her last name, and he looked her up and went to her home and was disappointed by how she was in real life. That's awful. That scene was cringy, too. Montero asks to go home, but Delco says they need to take a swab of his hand before leaving to rule him out for phototoxicity. The swab, yet again, comes back clean and is negative for the medication. So the first victim was selling drugs, and the second victim and Montero were always on their computers. It's like the killer was watching them and knew their every move. The team goes to each crime scene site and photographs the view outside from various angles at eye level. The photographs from the three crime scenes create a panoramic view of the outside environment. The killer could see his victims, and it's possible that they could see him too. This is a green flag because of line of sight, if the panoramas are superimposed over each other, they could possibly be an overlap which isolates a certain area of the building. Real CSI techs can do this. There's a bunch of different softwares that they can use to compile all the photos and superimpose them to isolate an area. The building that gets isolated from these photos is Nicholas Pike's apartment building. Kane and Delco go to his apartment and see that he had a telescope at the window where he could see all his victims. The telescope was pre-programmed to spy on the victims. They discover who victim four is going to be. They rush over to the possible fourth victim's house to stop Pike before he kills again before the sun sets. They stop Pike and tell him to turn around slowly. Pike's face is full of blisters and burns. Pike is taken into the precinct and Kane notices his wristwatch. Kane says they just found the evidence that they needed. Pike takes his watch off and hands it to Delco. Red flag here because Delco definitely should have put gloves on before handling a watch since it's possible key evidence. There is a relive string inside the watch that Pike had used to strangle his victim. The string is full of blood. Pike explained that he became enraged when he saw people wasting their lives when they could have been outside, when he couldn't go outside, and that's why he did what he did. Kane tells him that it wasn't for him to decide what other people's fates were, and then he dramatically puts on sunglasses. Yeah, seriously, Delco should have been wearing gloves, at least like holding it and not even on his hand. Instead of barehanding this watch, that is key evidence yeah. to the murderer. Not even like like a tissue or something, which isn't ideal, but they didn't even like try to pretend yeah. like he wasn't just barehanding evidence. Pulling the string out that is clearly full of blood that you're now getting your DNA on. So this episode, which dealt with the strangulation of victims, reminded us of the Chicago Strangler case. Between 1999 and 2018, 75 women between the ages of 18 and 58 were strangled to death in Chicago. By the end of 2019, the police had only solved 24 of the 75 cases. All the women were dumped after being killed in the south and west side neighborhoods, usually in abandoned buildings or alleyways. 47% of the women had a history of sex work, and three-quarters of them were African-American. Some victims were raped and beaten, and others were bound and gagged. 
while some had plastic bags tied over their heads when they were found. Most were stripped of their clothing and were even set on fire. Some of the deaths represented a unique tragedy to the families they left behind. Angela Ford, the earliest unsolved case, vanished after leaving home to pick up her children's report cards in 1999. She was found strangled and unconscious days after her disappearance and eventually died in 2001 after being in a coma for a year and a half. Gwendolyn Williams, the eldest of six, was murdered in in 2002. In 2007, two women were found murdered within 48 hours of each other. Teresa Bunn, who was eight months pregnant, was strangled, stripped, thrown into a dumpster, and set on fire. The next day, Hazel Lewis's body was found in a burning trash can behind an elementary school. Despite the violence and frequency of the murders, very few have elicited much media attention. Some believe that a single serial killer, nicknamed the Chicago Strangler, could be behind these gruesome murders. The killing stopped in 2014, only to pick up again in 2017. This may suggest that the single serial killer was briefly incarcerated and therefore unable to kill, but this has never been confirmed. Investigators have collected 21 pieces of DNA from half of the crime scenes, and the DNA is different at each case. So there's nothing to link all the cases together, and some believe that the police just aren't trying hard enough. Some believe that the Chicago Strangler is Darren Dion Van. He strangled multiple women in Gary, Indiana, and dumped their bodies in abandoned buildings before his arrest in 2014. He even told police he killed in Illinois. However, there's no connection between him and the 51 murders in Chicago. These women deserve justice. It's important to see these women as real human beings and not just a name on a police file. They had real lives that were taken from them, and they deserve justice just as much as everyone else does. We got the information on this case from an article by Kaylin Fraga at allthatsinteresting.com titled Inside the Mystery of the Chicago Strangler, which will be listed in our show notes if you want to read more about it. That is tragic. 51 women. Oh my god. Crazy that they... It's gone cold now and they have no leads after all those years. Yeah. Oh, those families deserve answers. That just breaks my heart. That is the end of our episode. We tallied a total of seven green flags and seven red flags for this episode of CSI Miami. So we want to know what you, the listeners, think. Should this episode pass in terms of forensic accuracy or should it go on our red flag list? Let us know if you guys caught any red or green flags that we might have missed. We're eager to hear your thoughts. If you enjoy our podcast, share it with friends, family, and coworkers. We'd love to grow our platform here. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at InsideTheMorgPod or Twitter at InsideTheMorgPod. And DM us any show suggestions. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye. Bye.